0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
1: Johnny Burnett Trio with Tear it up. i am a to leave a little baby Gonna be gone a long, long time i am a to leave a little baby Gonna be gone a long, long time So come on, little baby And show me your real cool time Tear it up Tear it up Tear it up Oh! Tear it up So come on, little mama Let's tear that damn floor up Oh! Oh! ¡Vamos!
0: You're listening to the Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. If you're joining us for the first time because of our new slot, Electric Sheep is an online cult film and world cinema journal which can be found at www.electricsheepmagazine.com. In the Electric Sheep film show, which will be broadcast on the third Wednesday of every month on Resonance at 5.30pm, repeated at 6am the following Sunday, myself and Electric Sheep editor Virginie Selavy will be interviewing filmmakers, critics and commentators on the world of cinema. I'm Alex Fitch, and the track you've just heard was Johnny Burnett with Tear It Up. One of the features of the Electric Sheep film show is classic rockabilly tracks from the 1950s selected by Virginie. And coming up later in the show, you'll hear The Deadly Ones, Carlos Cazell Jr. and Glenn Reeves. Our guests in tonight's show are Steven Shaneberg, the director of Secretary with James Spader and Maggie Gyllenhaal, Fur, a portrait of Diane Arbus with Nicole Kidman, And Virginie will be discussing with the director his latest movie, Rupture, on the subject of cults who indoctrinate their victims into joining them. Also in tonight's show, you'll hear a Q&A recorded at the Fantasia Festival in Montreal, in which Virginie and other members of the audience ask questions of director Guillermo del Toro, who has brought such amazing films as Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy to the screen, on the occasion of the release of a new documentary called Creature Designers, The Frankenstein Complex. However, to start off with, I'm interviewing the author Scott Tracy Griffin about his comprehensive history of Tarzan on film, published by Titan Books. Tarzan on film covers the last century of Tarzan adaptations, culminating in the latest movie, The Legend of Tarzan. To give you a flavour of all things connected with The Lord of the Jungle... Here's Tarzan star himself, Glenn Reeves, lending his dulcet tones to a track about Edgar Rice Burroughs' classic character. Tarzan on film has just been released in the UK. I guess, in a sense, to tie in with the release of The Legend of Tarzan, but this is actually your second book on the subject, so I guess Tarzan is already a subject that's close to your heart.
2: Yes. Um, this is, yeah, the follow up, the same publisher, Titan. Titan, uh, the president, uh, Nick Lenda and founder, mm. actually uh, is a Tarzan film fan and had asked me to follow up um, the first book. Covers the entire franchise. So this one covers, um, you know, focuses on the film, but the first one is more Tarzan's literary history, comics, Uh radio, all the myriad uh, things that Tarzan has appeared in for the past hundred years.
0: Mm. And I guess people have in their heads an idea of who Tarzan is on film. I mean, for me, I saw um, the Christoph Lambert version in the early 80s, and I guess other people remember Johnny Weissmuller uh, fondly from their childhood. What do you think it is about Tarzan that continues to make the character a popular subject for film?
2: Well, I think Burroughs was a genius in that he sort of tapped into the primal myth of humanity um the notion that uh, if we were just to return to the wild and leave civilization behind that we could sort of self actualize and you know be our best selves hmm. um, that civilization that brings us down that that um civilization creates you know, politics and deception <laughs> And um, all of the the myriad ills that we face as human beings, he felt like they just returned to nature. And and that was a big movement here in the United States in the early part of the uh, 20th century, you know, with the foundation of the Boy Scouts. And um, at the industrial age, everyone was moving to the cities and and starting to work in offices. Burris himself was what we call today a cubicle dweller, he was an office uh, worker. And he probably sat there staring out of the window, wishing he was outside because he had spent his formative years out in the, the West. He was a gold miner and a cowboy and was with the 7th Cavalry um, chasing Apache and outlaws in the Arizona Territory. So I think it was just that idea of returning to nature. Um, uh, appeals to people, and it's a wish-fulfillment fantasy that we could be the match of our own domain. You know, Carson doesn't answer to anyone. He's up to any challenge, uh, whether it's animal or human or um, you know, when the uh, men bring guns and the ivory poachers and treasure hunters and so forth come into his jungle, they're in his domain, and he's easily able to defeat them. So I think that's the, the why it resonates. And and Boz was very well schooled in the classics of Roman and Greek. He studied um Roman and Greek mythology extensively growing up. And so I think he was it was just sort of second nature for him to tap into that sort of mythic structure of uh you know, the hero.
0: Mm. The book is introduced by one of the big screen Tarzans, uh Caspar van Dien, and actually his portrayal yeah. was um nearly twenty years ago. Why do you think there's been such a long gap between Tarzan films on the big screen?
2: That's a good question. You know, Tarzan, unfortunately, the property seems to have uh, a propensity for for entering, you know, what we call in Hollywood development hell. Hmm. In other words, the property has been under option. They've been developing Tarzan movies. This, this most recently started, I believe, in 2003 hmm. and took 13 years to reach the screen. Casper uh, Van movie in 1998 actually started as the sequel to Greystoke, hmm. which of course was released in 1984. Greystoke uh, began in the early 1970s and, and took uh, 12 years. I don't know why the um, you know these movies take so long to get made and go through so many iterations. You know, with writers coming and going, directors coming and going. This most recently with David Yates. Uh, a number of uh, directors and writers were attached to you know, A-list top people. Um, and it was the same thing with the John Carter movie. You know, it went through a number of, of producers and writers and so forth in different studios. You know, Disney had it and went to Paramount and it went back to Disney. Hmm. So Hollywood recognizes the value of the brand, but um, they seem to take their time in, in getting the product out there. Uh, I'm not sure what that is.
0: Hmm. And I suppose in a way, the fact that it's almost been a generation since we've had a big screen live action Tarzan kind of is reflected in the plot of the latest movie in that it, it seems to be very much coming from a place where people have a memory of Tarzan. And this is reflected in the plot with him going back to his roots after being in civilization for a number of years.
2: Yes. Yeah, so well, that's, you know, the interesting thing about Tarzan is is it's a worldwide iconic um, property. Mm. And we still see every day in the United States, practically, some little cartoon of, you know, the man in the loincloth hmm. and the vine and the, the wife, Jane. And, and uh, we have a series of, of insurance commercials for Geico insurance running here for Tarzan and Jane are in the jungle, and he's lost and he won't ask for directions. Hmm. Um, I don't know if those are playing in England, but, um, you know, yes, Tarzan is something that's immediately identifiable, whether it's the, the wardrobe or you know, the jungle setting or the chimpanzee and Jane. Um, you know, that's one advantage, I think, that the movies start from, is that you don't have to tell people who Tarzan is. Mm. And I think with the new movie, they very sort of subtly shifted it back to the novels um, and incorporated parts of the myth that we've only gotten a little bit before, you know, in the movie Greystoke, the fact that he is um, in the House of Lords. Mm that he returned to England and he reclaimed his, his ancestral heritage and he's married to Jane. And, and you know, these are all parts of the novels that the fans who grew up reading the books wish had been incorporated into the movies before um, with Johnny Weissmuller. You know, there were eight silent films and they were all supposedly adapted from the novels with varying degrees of authenticity. Mm. And so when Edgar Rose Burroughs went to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, which was, you know, the grandest studio in the world in in the early 1930s, the biggest and the best, and and they actually went to him and and wanted to do a Tarzan film, Um, he agreed to sell them just the name of Tarzan and the concept and and said, don't adapt any of the novels, I'm retaining all that. So they created a new story Mm. with, you know, Jane as the daughter of the the ivory trader, um, you know, Colonel Parker. And so that in Denver version became so famous with she is a champ and boy, the adapted son, um, things that weren't part of the, the novel. You know, it was an original MGM concept. It, it colored our concept of Tarzan ever spent. Mm. And those moves play in such high rotation, even today on, on cable TV and, um, you know, snippets on the internet and so forth, that it still colors our, impression of who Tarzan was, so I was really glad that the movie got back to the books and showed this, um, because the literary Tarzan is, to me, a far more interesting and um, complex character, and I think the literary Tarzan deserves um, a greater audience.
0: Mm. Well, and I guess something that we've all suspected um, from seeing the various screenings on TV are that there are a number of uh, Tarzan movies that have been made over the last hundred years, but your book really consolidates that idea. With um, There's a quote in one chapter where you have someone talking about they wanted um, Tarzan to be as much of a franchise as the Bond movies, with one coming out every year. And certainly for a period of time, yes. it felt like that was almost the case.
2: Yes. With Saul Lesser, you know, in the early 1930s, when MGM took the property, Burroughs said that he wanted it to be like the circus. Of course, then we didn't have all the entertainment options. You know, um, radio was, was fairly new, and television hadn't been developed. So Burroughs felt like a Tarzan film should be an annual event that everyone looked forward to. And at that time, um, that was very forward-thinking. And so Saul Lesser uh, complied from for the first 50 uh, years of Tarzan's existence, from 1918 through 1968, I believe there were about 40 Tarzan films, and the longest time between Tarzan films, well, there was a six-year gap, but there was an average, uh, you know, on average, a Tarzan film released every 14 months. So, yeah, they were, you know, an annual thing, almost, Mm. and um, each one seemingly more profitable than the last. I believe in the 1960s, when Cy Weintraub took over, he noted that, you know, Tarzan movie had ever lost money, And each one of his, you know, were making more money than the last. You know, Tarzan, you know, pioneered this, this franchise pioneered a lot of things. From the very early days of the 1940s, Saul Lesser, you know, made 75% of his gross profits overseas. Tarzan was an international franchise, and and we're seeing that now in the States with the big superhero movies and everything that they're looking at the world markets and, and sort of maximizing the appeal to across cultures. And, you know, Parson was doing that in the 1940s. And, and that was one reason the um, self said that he kept Tarzan's dialogue down is it was left to translate
0: mm.
2: the action and the literature storylines translated quite well across cultures.
0: Mm. Well, and, and one fact that I hadn't come across before in your book was that there were rival Tarzan films that came out in 1932, 1933, one with um, Weissmuller and the other with Buster Crab. That's something I hadn't uh, realized before.
2: Yes. Um, we saw <laughs> when Burroughs during the silent era, Burroughs uh, would sell options on the Tarzan films that wouldn't get made, and <laughs> then he would just move on and, and sell it to the next person. But in the meantime, this other option was sort of percolating in the background. And it was very frustrating to Burroughs because uh, you know there was Hollywood accounting even in those days. He would get a down payment on the option, and then he wouldn't see any more money for the royalties. They would tell him, oh, the movie you know, wasn't profitable enough to generate true royalties. And so, yeah, these other um, competing Tarzan films kept popping up. Saul Lesser was always ready to jump into the breach when when MGM paused in between films. He would uh, pop up with one of his films. He did it uh, in 1933 with Buster Crabb, and again in 1938 with the Glenn Morris. Um, Glenn, of course, was the the Catalan champion of the Berlin Olympics. You know, with Hitler, mm-hmm. he, um, and so you know, right, they were they were trying to capitalize on Johnny as a, an Olympic athlete, his popularity. Buster was an Olympic swimmer with Morris and Burroughs briefly tried to enter the production game with a man named Ashton Deerholt and they shot a Tarzan film in Guatemala with Herman Briggs who was a silver medalist Olympic shot putter. So, you know, in those days, yeah, yeah. An Olympic champion was considered, uh, you know, the pedigree you needed to play cars Tarzan. In. It's interesting how the, the actors and the character have sort of evolved. The very first one, Donald mm. um, Lincoln, was you know sort of a traditional strong man um, type guy, huge fifty-three inch chest and big and bulky, and you know that evolved to the Olympic athletes. And, and today we have the actors; they would rather choose a talented, you know, trained actor like Alexander Skarsgard, and then physically sort of get him to speed, Tarzan through the training and the diet and um, that sort of thing. So, yeah, our our, our concept of Tarzan is, is always evolving to reflect what's going on in society.
0: Mm. Well, and, and speaking of which, I don't know if you had a similar debate in America, but certainly when The Legend of Tarzan was released in the UK, there was a lot of liberal hand-wringing uh, in the media about whether this kind of film is suitable for the 21st century, whether this exoticization of the black characters is uh, suitable in the present day. And indeed, it seems slightly absurd that they pick on the Belgians um, as being terrible colonialists uh, exploiting the land in this film, and they show the British as being heroic when Britain has just as much uh, blood on its hands considering its colonial history.
2: Yeah, we had that. Um, There was some, and it's a bit frustrating because, you know, you get the feeling that the people, they they, um, object more to the idea Mm. than the actual execution of the idea or the history behind it. Um, And the notion that Tarzan was colonialist, um, certainly there may have been colonialist or imperialist assumptions tied up in his creation, Mm. but, you know, Tarzan was always the one who was fighting this sort of intrusion, who was fighting injustice, who was fighting... um, you know, for what is right and good, and and um, you know, he was always of a heroic stature. And to, so, to hear him um, sort of identified with the bad guys, so to speak, is is a little odd for those of us who grew up you know, with the books and with a, a more rounded picture of who Frozen is. Mm. Um, and that certainly changes, you know, to um, address public perception and I think Yates uh, and, and company did a really good job of just sort of staying out of the political frame, making their movie subtly shifting Tarzan so that it did appeal to our times, and, and making a movie that appealed across the quadrants. You know, women seem to really like it. There's nothing too objectionable for older children. Um, they seem to really like it. You know, it's, this Tarzan has uh, a very broad appeal, I think. And that's something they've they've... You know noticed before in the franchise with like the Ron Healing movie in the 19, uh, Ron Heely television series in the 1960s. They thought this would be an adventure series for children. And one of their biggest audience uh, um, audiences and, and growing right up until the time this series was canceled was women.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, women
2: responded uh, quite unexpectedly to seeing this guy in the long cloth uh, <laughs> running around to spin some just in the jungle and I, I think Yates recognized that and um, that certainly that Alexander that, Scarsgaw Tarzan is someone who appeals to women through his um, you know just very subtle acting you know he acted a lot with his eyes and, and even to the point where he was criticized for underplaying the role and by some critics but that's the Tarzan of the novels he's not an emotional you know he's not someone who who his Emotions. He's very laconic, He's very beast-like. Um, you know, he sees things, situations, and he assesses them. And and um, he's not someone who places his emotions on his sleeve. And I thought uh, Spielberg did did a, did a great job of, of exemplifying that.
0: Cool. Okay. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's a it's a fantastic book. And um, even if you know people haven't seen the new Tarzan film, I think it's uh, enjoyable. Uh, in, showing a survey of the various versions that have come out over the last century.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Tarzan on Film by Scott Tracy Griffin is available now from Titan Books, as is his previous survey of Tarzan in other media, The Centennial Celebration, and both titles can be ordered from titanbooks.com. Next, here's an extract from the Q&A with director Guillermo del Toro, recorded at Fantasia Festival in Montreal in which the director of such movies as Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth is discussing his lifelong interest in making monster movies to celebrate the release of the new documentary, Creature Designers' The Frankenstein Complex. Guillermo del Toro nearly made a Tarzan film in recent years, but dropped out due to the pre-production Hell that Scott Tracy talked about earlier but in this Q&A he will be discussing all the other wonderful creatures that he's committed to film. To put you in the mood for monster mashups, here's Carlos Cazell Jr. with Don't Meet Mr. Frankenstein.
4: Frankenstein! And then he said... I think that you'd look better
3: dead. I didn't know just where to hide
4: I said we're going for a ride It's just about time I had my lunch Well he opened his mouth and my head went crunch
3: Mr.
5: Pakistan. you know, if you if you guys are weird where you come from, and you're North American, I imagine most of you, imagine a South American kid. <laughs> Growing up like you guys, I was basically in a jar, you know. So it was it was not. I didn't I didn't find like-minded fellows very easily, you know. And I was uh, the freaky pale, super thin back then. I remedied that super <laughs> thin boy, you know. That, that 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 buttoned his shirt all the way to the last button and and. You know, I, I, I read about Christopher Lee and Vincent Price uh, uh, in, the, in the bookstores of the expats. You know, there was a lot of expat Americans living in my city and I, for some reason they, they, they were buying uh, Famous Monsters, Mad Magazine, Eerie, Creepy, you know, all the, all the uh, crappy horror magazines. And I, I, I would go and buy them there and I would buy my first horror books in English. I became bilingual, uh, self-taught, uh, with a dictionary and Famous Monsters and Mad Magazine. You know, that's how I learned to speak and write the English language. Now, for me, I am way away from being normal. You know, I'm not, and I doubt I'll ever be a normal guy. I think I'm an, an okay human being, flawed but whatever. You know, but but I I, I don't think I'm normal and I'll never be. Uh, monsters are real for me. In, in the sense that, uh, if you see my movies, there's never there's never any doubt the creatures are real. Whatever it is, Pan's Labyrinth, Devil's Bag One, I don't care. I completely believe in them. And so it's never an ambiguous uh, psychological drama where are there they, of course they are. They, the, mon- monsters are real. I mean, the opening of Crimson Peak is Ghosts are real, this much I know. For me, ghosts are real. I'm a Mexican, you know? Everything weird and fucked up, I think is real. Because, it, it, and it's not a magical, reality. nothing. We have a complete certainty. You know, the way a Christian believes that Jesus will save his life, that's the way I believe monsters will save my, my soul. I believe it, completely. And for me, it's um, it's an inventory of saints. Uh, the creature, the Frankenstein monster. These are religious figures for me. When people say, "Oh, you're a collector," I'm not. I'm not a collector. I'm a religious man. And I, when when I see Boris, I see a messianic figure, somebody that died for my sins. When I see the Gilman, I see one of the most beautiful creatures ever created. You know, I see perfection. I see the Holy Spirit. You know, and and these things, I don't collect for value. I don't know if my uh, Spider-Man 13 mint sealed in a bag is worth 750 or what. Fuck that shit. I collect. I I, I I create shrines. So my my collection, my house, which is two houses full of monsters, uh, it's a shrine. I I, I, I So th- these creatures are real. For I me, mean, they're not. I'm not a I'm not a fan. I'm a deranged creature. <laughs> Uh, this lady over here at the left.
6: What was the monster that most strongly dominated your imagination as a child?
5: To this day, the Frankenstein creature, the picture of Frankenstein. The moment, the moment I saw him come into the light, I was blown away. I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a beautiful piece by Mike Hill, which is a seven-foot tall, hyper-realistic face of, of Boris as a, as a monster. Uh, that you see when you enter my my house, hanging in the balcony, and it's it's, it's it recreates the the awe. And it's going to be in the LACMA exhibit. where well, my stuff is going to be there uh, uh, as part of my collection. But but uh, that that creature, my favorite creatures, are uh, the creature of Frankenstein, the Gilman, uh the xenomorph in Alien, and I think those are the three. Top of the Tops, and then if you go Man in a Suit, Godzilla, Baragon, and we can go into... I mean, I'm, I'm a centoist. <laughs> I completely adore uh, Japanese monsters.
6: But wh- why Frankenstein specifically? What was it that... Well,
5: when I was a kid, I, I saw the movie, I was incredibly moved by the fact that the creature was an innocent. You know, it was... I, I never have seen... I have never seen a movie, a horror movie, in which I want the monster to be destroyed. I want the fucking villagers to die. I want the scientists to explode. I want, any, everybody can die except the fucking monster. So, you know, I'm, I'm I'm the guy, I remember in prison when they show movies where a heist is happening, the prisoners root for the bad guys. They want the cops to die. That's me watching a horror movie. So, you know, when I saw him, there was such serene, innocent, essential grace in the way Boris portrayed the creature. There was a a beauty that was truly uh, holy. That was truly uh, transcendental in the way he portrayed it. And then I read the book. And I realized the book has not been made. To this day nobody has made the book. But the book became my Bible. Because what Mary Shelley wrote was the quintessential sense of isolation you have as a kid it's a teenage book it's the quintessential teenage book you don't belong you were brought to this world by people that do not care for you you know, and you are thrown into a world of pain and suffering and tears and hunger and you learn to talk And it's, 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 it's an amazing book written by a teenage girl I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing so Frankenstein to me is the pinnacle of everything, you know? And uh, part of me wants to do a version of it. Part of me, has, for more than 25 years, chickened out of making it. But you know, because sometimes, I-, I dream I can make the greatest Frankenstein ever, but then if you make it, you made it. Whether it's great or not, it's done. You cannot dream about it anymore. That- that's the-, the tragedy of a filmmaker. You can dream of something, and once you make it, you made it. That's it. You landed at 10, or you landed at 6.5, but you were at the Olympics already. <laughs> right? You were judged. That statement that monsters save your soul. <laughs> well, if you see, all my movies, I try to say, uh, I only speak about real monsters, which are human. If you watch my movies, it, it Crimson Peak, Devil's Wagon, trans-labyrinth, whatever you want, the monsters are the humans, they're not really the monsters, Yeah, so that's real, sadly, I think that uh, we live in a, in a very brutal world, and uh, you address it by making the monsters uh, creatures that serve a, a more symbolic function, that illuminate the human tail, you know what I'm saying? For me the, the as I say in Crimson Peak verbatim I say it's not a story it's not a ghost story, it's a story with a ghost in You know? Because the ghost illuminates the human condition. Or the, the, the fawn and the paleman and the fantasy illuminate the human condition in Pan's Labyrinth. But the scariest thing in Pan is not the fawn or the paleman, is the captain, you know? So to me I don't I don't I don't address it. I, I you know, you talk about what you feel like any other artist, you, you the important thing, the only important thing in art is to not try to, do not be yourself, do not try to be anybody else. You can imitate when you're young, you can imitate when you're young, but you should not try to uh, impose a different range on your voice, you know? That's why I don't do, I, I'm not trying my hand at anything other than what I do. I, I'm not trying to do a drama about a violin player that uh, was a... I don't give a f- about reality. <laughs> to me, reality can be only reached through these tales. So I address it through that.
0: Creature Designers' The Frankenstein Complex is released on DVD on the 3rd of October by Studio Canal and features interviews with such movie monster creators as Rick Baker and Dennis Muran. Alongside directors Joe Dante, Kevin Smith, and Guillermo del Toro, finally on tonight's show, Virginie Celevi, editor of Electric Sheep Magazine, is talking to director Stephen Shaneberg in another interview recorded at Fantasia Festival in Montreal. Shaneberg is best known for his films made in the early 2000s with strong female leads, Secretary with Maggie Gyllenhaal and Fur, a portrait of Diane Arbus. Nicole Kidman, and in his new movie Rupture, featuring Numi Rapace, Peter Stamare, and Michael Chicklis, he's delving into the mysterious world of cults and the people who join them.
6: Yes, and it's, it's taken you 10 years to make another film.
7: So yes, you should, you should shoot me. Yeah. Well, well, it hasn't taken me 10 you know years. It, it um,
6: I'm sure it does is, is it funding is it just yeah it's all about money other things no. well?
7: well I mean I had I had um, my children who I adore and try to spend as much time with as I possibly can. but the answer to that is that it has been impossible to get my other movies made.
6: And so what other projects did you
7: have Well I, I have um, in the time that it took me to get this made, I have seven other movies that are some of them are cast partially some of them uh, two of them came very very close to getting made with big stars and every single time the money was not there that's the reason that it's been that long and
6: what sort of films were they because um, they're
7: not like this at all
6: yeah this is I'm, an anomaly but it's really interesting <laughs> because so you did secretary you did hit me first yeah, which yeah. The thompson adaptation. Yeah then you do for uh, the Diane Arbus yeah. film <laughs> and of this so uh, you know I was going to ask you so this is your first sort of foray into SF and into yes. genre basically yes and so what attracted you to, to this kind of to, why did you decide to make the genre film
7: well it's interesting because um, it is a genre movie obviously in certain ways but in other ways it's exactly the same movie that the other seven movies are that I haven't gotten made and the (laughs) movies that I've made, which is, you know, it's the story of a person who uh, is um, confronted with an unusual situation and has to discover who they are. And, you know, for whatever reason, um, all the things that I'm interested in are always about that kind of personal discovery within yourself about who you really are and identity. And um, you know, when I started I had the idea for this movie, started talking to the producer and it was bizarre about it. Originally I didn't think it was a movie that I would be interested to make. And then as I started working on the story and as we developed the screenplay and kept kept on, you know, with various drafts, I realized, oh, this is that movie. I'm, I'm making that movie again. And then I thought, oh, well, this would be interesting to see if that kind of story can be told in a different context. And, you know, it is a movie about somebody who has to um, confront their fear in order to transform into who they really are. Well, that's the story of Secretary, and that's the story of Fur, and that's the story of the other movies as well. So in that sense it's really you no know, different
6: it's, it's also <laughs> I'm sorry to say you know no I that was also <laughs> yeah. actually one of my questions yeah. because it, it does seem uh, similar thematically in that you have a woman who goes through a certain amount of pain to yeah. get to another sort of either realization about herself or yeah. another level of herself yes another yeah. sort of maybe acceptance of exactly, herself yeah. maybe yeah. um so, so yes so I was going to ask you about this and it, it did seem to have a similar kind of
7: uh, direction yeah well it's yeah and it's, but it's, it's not it's,
6: just fear it's
7: pain isn't it? it well there's there's pain which is always part of self-discovery and change um, and it's also um, confusion and, uh, and and fear those are the those are the, I think confusion fear and pain are the doors through which we have to pass in order to get anywhere and in order to have any kind of truth about ourselves. And, you know, um, girls are more fun to look at than boys.
6: That's my next question. (laughs) So you like female characters, do you?
7: Yeah. I would rather, you know, I think uh, they asked Kieslowski, you know, when he made Red, White and Blue, why are all your heroes women? And I think his answer was something along the lines of, they're great to look at you know (laughs) and you know you do have to look through the lens at them for a long time and then you have to be in the cutting room with them for a long time and then you have to go out into the world with them for a long time and I think I'm inclined to sort of love them you know uh, and just kind of adore them so that's what leads me in that direction and it's not to say that just by the way that like of the movies that I'm trying to get made now I think they all yeah they almost all have not all of them but most of them have very strong male characters and um, I'm not I I think to some extent it's really more of a just a desire to change that Um, but that's pretty much been the inclination You have to be in love with all your characters, you know for sure, even the ones that are horrible. But at least understand them and want to connect with them in some way. But but uh, the protagonist of the movie, yeah, you gotta love that person. That's what's hard about like making a movie. Not that I've actually ever done this, but I've certainly come close to making a movie with a person that um, that you don't kind of adore, you know. Like I'll just give you an example. I have a movie that um, is really fabulous that Peter Dinklage is going to play the lead in, and I-, I just totally adore him. And so, like, that feeling that I have for him and his life and, and what he is and how he's handled it, it's exciting to think that we could make that movie. You know? So, and he's a guy. <laughs> <laughs>
6: um there is a difference between Secretary and Rupture which is that uh, Secretary ends with some kind of resolution Mm. even though it's a flawed resolution but
7: oh yeah they're going to be together Yeah, at the end of that movie for sure Rupture
6: seems to be very open you don't it's like I'm waiting for Rupture too.
7: well from your mouth to God's ears I mean we made there were various endings for the movie Mm. the intention and the hope was that the movie would make a load of money and we'd get to make another one and that's why the ending is open-ended.
6: It does feel that way. Yeah. Yeah.
7: I mean, that's what it's there for and, um, you know, we would need a um, savvy enough American distributor to see the possibility in that. And that's what we're hoping for. Mm -hmm. You know, that, um, because this tells a very simple first beat story of her becoming part of them. And so the thing that happens between her and them, and between her, them, and her kid, and so forth, and then the world, is not part of this movie. It's supposed to be part of other movies. So that's the reason. I mean, yeah. you see it easily, yeah. 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 Um, and why did
6: you decide to focus on the single mug? Is that something that has special significance for you or is it just the way the character was?
7: Well there are this is the reason why they take her when they take her she's, she's primed for the rupture and what does that mean? It means that there are periods in your life where you're vulnerable and where you're more fragile and you're not as strong as you might have been a couple years ago, or you will be in the future. But at that moment, some real change can occur for you. And that's why she's a person who is saying to her friend on the phone and to her kid, I'm going skydiving. Well, who goes skydiving for the first time? It's, It's a person who is looking for a new feeling. They're looking for... Something in themselves that they can release. That's who goes skydiving for the first time. Not the tenth time, maybe, but certainly for the first time, it's somebody who is looking for a kind of transformation. So she has this fragile relationship with her ex-husband who is insensitive to her. And she's vulnerable and she's tender and she's looking for a change, and that's the moment when things can happen for you.
6: And how did you cast the film? Because oh, well, yeah, a fantastic
7: film. You know, it's it's one of the ironies of or of low budget filmmaking that for most supporting parts you can't afford another big name. And from the director's point of view, my translation of that is. Oh, we get to cast people who are great who and write for the movie. You know, I was just saying to somebody uh, last night, if she goes to that facility and all those people are faces that you know and people you recognize, you will not be scared. Because you know who they are. But if she goes to a place and you don't know who the fuck these people are, it's much more unnerving. And so, um, you know we had to cast certain people out of Toronto because of our Toronto deal but we could also bring some people so for example we brought Leslie Manville who from my point of view is one of the greatest actresses in the world I never ever thought she would do it but she was free in between two movies and she was like oh I love Steve I'm... yes I'll do it I was like fuck <laughs> this is so great I love it. I love her And so so that was amazing to have her. And, you know, the same thing was true with Chickless and everybody else and Carrie Bechet and, and certainly with Stormare. And, you know, it needed to be a group that had a certain coherent internal vibe. And, you know, the criteria was, is this a person who feels like they ruptured in their own life? And that's what Lazar, the producer, and I would assess during casting. You know, like, that guy's awesome, but he's the wrong guy for this movie. He hasn't really ruptured yet. <laughs> that was our criteria. Are you one of
6: them
7: then? <laughs> I've, I'm, I'm, I've ruptured many times. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> um, but, and I, I love the idea, and I, I, I do
6: get what you're saying yeah. about sort of... Um, yeah. I think yeah. you really get that in the movie yeah. and that works really well um, yes I, I love the idea of transformation coming yeah. out of terror yeah. basically I thought that was one of the great ideas yeah. of the film yeah.
7: that, that's the idea of the movie yeah, yeah so it
6: was, what inspired that idea was it like a specific event or was it just a general idea of life? That life well happens? it's something I how it yeah,
7: yeah it's something I understand you know um, what one has to move through and be capable of um, you know, working with in your own life in order to arrive at something new for yourself and uh, you know, it's um, spiders are merely a metaphor and we all have those things crawling all over us all all the time and um, you know most people most of the time can't transcend that you know that's why one of the things that I like about the movie is that everyone else is saying what do you want from me all the people who are there and they never answer the question except to say it's entirely up to you and that's the truth. It's entirely up to you.
6: And what's interesting is that you're not quite sure if they're good or bad guys, because you, you that's don't absolutely true. know what the ultimate aim is. Are they helping people to discover? Something but that's
7: that's the experience that we have in our own lives of people in our lives who are working on us. You know, whoever is saying to you or to me, you know this is where you're failing, or this is your problem, or you need to, or, you know, how come you can't, or what is stopping you here? Those people, we're suspicious of them. We don't know if they're good or bad. And they might be loving and gentle, but they might be insisting that we do something hard, right? Or they might be threatening and suggesting that we might do something easy and good for us. So... We are confused about it. Our experience of it is confusion.
6: And I think this goes with the fact that in the movie, uh, the transformation is shown twice on the two probably most beautiful women in your cast. Exactly. So you have this contrast between beauty and mistrust. Yes.
7: But that's also, we think, one of the things that we're terrified of is that if we make that transformation, we will become something horrible. ...to ourselves or to others. And it's not necessarily that we'll become something horrible... ...but we'll certainly become something unknown. And the unknown and the horrible are like right next to each other. And, you know, um, you can't have them transform into something beautiful and lovely... ...because that's not how we experience the fear of transformation. That's not how we experience the challenge of all these things we're afraid that there's something ugly in us otherwise we wouldn't be afraid of it if it was just something beautiful that was going to be revealed well, it would be very easy we're ashamed and terrified and 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 uh, disinclined
6: and I wonder also if this has But you're been...
7: sorry but you're, you're 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 recognizing very astutely the all the metaphor of the movie and how it's operating through the whole film and that's what made me want to make it mm-hmm. You know, yes, it's a genre movie, but it's really a movie about spiritual existence, you know? And you you, you co wrote,
6: yeah, didn't yeah, you? Does, yeah. does, and you co wrote secretary as well. Yes. So do those two films feel more personal to you because you had an input in the screened?
7: No, every movie that I'm involved with feels personal. Otherwise I'm I, I wouldn't know how to do it. I mean, most of the things that I'm not most of all of them except for one are things that I've developed or written or, you know, worked with writers on. um, I'm not a person, um, although this happens all the time, I'm not a person who, you know, I I, I get offered things and I read them and I'm like, I I don't know. I don't know what to do here. You know, like, it, it just, I don't know. I mean, maybe someday I would read something and go, Oh, yeah. I get it you know but financiers and producers don't really develop these kinds of movies you know they're too unusual Mm -hmm. they have to come from somebody specific
6: Mm -hmm. and I think this is also connected to an aspect of your films which is that you seem very interested in marginalized characters (laughs) 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 yeah people are different
7: (laughs) yeah you know uh you know, somebody once said that, and I and I said, well, you know, the thing is, problems are what's interesting. The pro- the movie has to have somebody in a problem, and um, I'm not drawn to the ordinary guy who's angst ridden about his suburban life unless he's nuts and really on the edge, you know, and um, I guess. Um, I grew up as a kind of unusual person in various ways and so I don't feel I feel connected. I feel like <laughs> my wife says she says you're much more Peter Dinklage than Bradley Cooper. And <laughs> and it's true. Like I would rather cast Peter Dinklage than Bradley Cooper. Fair enough,
6: I'm with
7: you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I don't know. That's just me. Sorry,
6: that's a brilliant place to stop this. Fantastic, (laughs) great.
0: Rupture by Stephen Sheinberg is yet to see a release in the UK, but is still doing the rounds of film festivals across the world. If you enjoyed tonight's episode of the Electric Sheep Film Show, you can find podcasts of previous episodes on our website, electricsheepmagazine.co.uk-events, as well as info on the Electric Sheep-affiliated Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, lectures on strange films which take place at the Horse Hospital near Russell Square Tube in London. If you're listening to the first broadcast of the Electric Sheep film show in September, the next Miskatonic Institute lecture is taking place tomorrow night, the 22nd of September, with Mark Pilkington, writer of Mirage Men, talking about rituals in the dark evoking magic on film, looking at medieval grimoires and spellcraft to the spiritual liberation of mid-20th century witchcraft on the silver screen. Doors open for Mark's lecture at 7pm at the Horse Hospital, and you can find more information at electricsheepmagazine.co.uk. The Electric Sheep Film Show was presented and edited by Alex Fitch, with additional interviews recorded and presented by Virginie Selavy. We'll be back in the same slot next month, the third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm. And to play out, here's The Deadly Ones with It's Monster Surfing Time. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at
4: fundraiser.resonance.fm.